Hey, just a quick side note to let you know that I recently published my own story, Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir. You can find it on Amazon, and I hope to have an audio version released very soon. I hope you'll add my story to your reading or listening list. Okay, here's the show. One thing that I um, that I told her the first time we met, I told her it was important for me, and I, I told her I don't even know if this is important to you, but I just want to tell you that I love you and I forgive you, you know, and um, I, I needed to tell her that out loud. Maybe just for me, I don't know, but I needed to because I definitely had a resentment for a long time. So I needed to to let her off the hook, so to speak. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? a podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and on today's show is James. He called me from right up the road in Laurel, Maryland. In James's story, you'll hear his struggle to find himself and an identity as a youth in a family that didn't look like him. It took him years to find his voice after a bitter divorce left him and his adopted siblings abused. Thankfully, James's wife, an excellent investigator, found his birth parents and helped initiate meaningful reunions that allowed James to express forgiveness and to find belonging. This is James's journey. So it turns out, James and I have only a few degrees of separation. He works for one of my dad's friends, Knowlton Atterbury. If you read my memoir, Knowlton's name might sound familiar. It was Knowlton's house we stopped by the day I was adopted where my dad put me on the ground and with pride watched me crawl around Knowlton's home. Anyway, back to James. James was born in San Francisco, California. He describes himself as biracial and he was adopted by a white family. He has an older brother and sister who are also white and also adopted. James said life started off fantastic. They lived in a picturesque community in Berkeley. And in his early childhood, the racial makeup of their home didn't matter much to him at all. They were just his family. But then things changed dramatically. My parents got divorced when I was seven, and it, it was pretty traumatic. And it threw the family into chaos. And uh, there was some abuse that went on. And there was just some, you know, it just wasn't a good good scene. Um, we were suddenly didn't have any money. And just things, things were got pretty bad. And do you yep. mind me asking, in terms of the abuse that happened in the family, was that towards the children or exclusively towards your mother or what? Um, it was it was towards us from our mom. She, um, you know, there's some physical abuse and some just emotional stuff. It was just just um, kind of damaging. Just not. She wasn't really, I don't think, um, in a good place to be a single mom with you know struggling and. Um, it's just a bad scene. It's James's recollection that his adoptive mother's abuse began after the divorce, but he admits he was seven years old, in first grade, and his memory might be a little incorrect. James described the next five years as chaos. Because of what was going on in the home, Child Protective Services came, and they actually removed my brother when he was 12, and I was 10. So um, he was removed from the home. He never came back to live with us. 
Uh, he went through the foster care system and, and, um, you know, we always stayed in touch, but he never lived in the home again. Mm -hmm. Um, so that kind of gives you an idea of, you know, how serious it was. Um, this was during her single parenting period. Yes. Yep. It was like right in the middle of it. Um, and, so and it, he, it was pretty, he was the middle child. So he was removed and the two of you were not. That's, I find that right. interesting. Mm-hmm. That they let us stay. I mean, it was, I kind of was hoping they'd take me out too. <laughs> really? I thought he, I thought he was the big winner, you know? I mean, that was from the perspective of a 10 year old, but, um, I probably didn't think that, but he, Chris, so I took some psych courses in college and, you know, the, they, sometimes they label the birth order and a lot of times the middle child is labeled the scapegoat. And, um, he's definitely, he was definitely the scapegoat. He caught the worst of it. I mean, he really caught, he caught hell. Chris ran away a lot, often found by the police. An investigation into their family life called for his removal, but the other children remained. James said he never asked why. But at first glance, you could see how the squeaky wheel got the oil. A runaway child might be the one to be removed before others, even though everyone was in danger. When James was in sixth grade, his mother remarried. Their stepfather was a nice guy, a college professor, and their combined income alleviated some financial pressure in the house. But then he started physically abusing their mother. All of these tumultuous situations were wreaking havoc on James's identity. He started to recognize the differences between himself and those around him. That's when I started to get into the identity stuff like, oh, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm a little different here. That compounded with the sort of the emotional stuff that was, you know, the, the, the constant sort of sarcasm and um, hostility that was in the house. Um, you know, that, that, that kind of worked to kind of devastate my self-esteem. So that, that's kind of where I was going. I asked James to give some examples of exactly how he started to feel different. Yeah. I mean, like back to school nights, you know, like everybody else's parents kind of matched, you know, and, and mm. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, I was uh, a person of color, you know, I was biracial and, um, had a big afro and you know this <laughs> is like very obvious and my mom was was white and she was red hair and very fair skinned and so it made me self-conscious in, in, in that regard i thought people were judging me and and it's funny because i found out later that in berkeley at that time i was there was a lot of us mixed kids who were adopted by white people <laughs> it was just like a whole lot so but i had no idea that this was this wasn't all that abnormal. I just I felt very outside of the norm. And then with the stuff that was going on at home, I just felt ashamed. And like I said, I lost my voice. You know, I, I didn't I didn't want to speak up, you know, and, and the only outlet I had was was sports. You know, I played a lot of sports and um, that was good. I mean, that's how I, you know, achieved, you know, you know, made friends and and got a sense of fulfillment and achievement and that stuff. But mm -hmm. uh, other than that, it was, I felt like a pariah. So um, that's tell the effect me, it had on me. Tell me more about, you use the words, I lost my voice. What does that mean? Well, for me, it means that um, I felt my opinion didn't matter. And, and, and that um, if I formed an opinion, it wasn't going to be heard anyway, if I did voice it. I guess I felt unheard. It might be a better just not heard, you know, and, and it, it just stayed with me through everything else, through school, through, 
my early work career, just through everything. I just didn't figure that um, my voice needed to be heard from. <laughs> it didn't matter. It sounds like you felt. It, exactly. Exactly. It didn't matter. And I was probably wrong. James said it wasn't until his 40s and when he had established the career he has now that he finally learned to speak up and let his voice be heard. The natural ability to voice his own opinion, which comes naturally to many of us, requires an extra boldness for James. His self-esteem had been demolished in his youth. Back then, the playground and sports were his outlet. He would go outside to play and stay out there for hours. But he recalls that the camaraderie that the other children had while socializing after the games were over didn't come naturally to him. When the others were chit-chatting, he was still out on the court practicing by himself. He said he usually only had one friend at a time. Like I would have close friends, like one close friend, and then I would kind of, kind of, it's kind of weird, but I would kind of rotate them. You know, <laughs> so I'd, I'd like have a, a good friend, and then after a while, I'd, I kind of move over to another good friend, and I never really had like a group or a, it, it was always like one person I was really, I would latch on to, and we would just be best friends for a while, then I'd have another best friend, you know, it's just kind of the way it went for me. That is really interesting. So, it sounds like you were having trust issues with, more than one person like you, you know, the people in your right. life, you know, your brother was taken away. Mm -hmm. Your mom was, right. um, mm -hmm. you know, mentally abusive, physically abusive. So the trust that you, mm -hmm. if you had it before you were seven uh, was demolished again mm -hmm. by the time this all occurred after divorce. It sounds like you really had some challenges in trying to develop these interpersonal relationships now because – all of the closest ones that you had had up until that point were were destroyed mm -hmm. or taken away. I, I could see how you would only begin exactly. to be able to take in one person at a time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the message I got was if you love somebody or or opened up and were vulnerable, they either hurt you or they left. You know what I mean? So that that's kind of the message I had received at that point. So it wasn't wise to put myself in that position. So, yeah. James's sister left their home when she was 16 years old. She was aggressive and rebellious and acted out in a lot of ways against their mother. The departures in his life were a pattern, so he developed a lot of trust issues. James said part of the paradox of his upbringing was he grew up in a really nice community, but the chaos inside their home didn't match the tranquility of the outside environment. All of his friends in the neighborhood had stuff, but his family was struggling. As background, he told me his mother inherited some money when her mother passed away, before he was born. So when their money ran out, the house became a source of resentment for the kids. They wanted to sell the house, move to a more affordable place, but their mother refused. The home became an anchor for the family, and their living situation was a source of shame for James. He said his mother died in that house in 2011 when he was 42 years old. In hindsight, He's grateful for the glimpse he got into disparities in people's socioeconomic status. Turning to James's desire to search, he said that after a while, he kind of resented the fact that he didn't look like his family. Keep in mind, he's a brown-skinned, interracial child with woolly hair, and his mother was a fair-skinned, red-haired woman. I think I developed a resentment about it because um, it just was one more thing that didn't seem fair in life. So... It was like, okay, so here's another thing I have to deal with. You know, at least everybody else kind of matches their parents and knows where they come from. And 
that type of thing. I not only live in a chaotic, crazy situation, but you know, I'm not even blood related to these people. You know what I mean? So it was like, I mean, don't get me wrong. They're my family. I mean, to this day, I mean, you know how it is. You're, you're born and raised, basically born and raised in a family. That's your family. But you know, there's always that kind of hole in you. That's like, okay, wait a minute. Where, who do I, where do I come from? You know? And so, and then the added, uh, the added component of, not being of the same nationality, even not even looking, not even, you know, we couldn't even fake it, you know? So, so there was that. So I started trying to, trying to figure out like, you know, I wonder who my dad is. Like that was really important to me because that's the black side of me. And and I just, I kind of always identified with that. And and I just, man, I was just like, who's my dad? I remember growing up in the seventies, Walt Frazier was great point guard for the Knicks. And I said, I bet I, I used to fantasize that he was my dad, you know, and he was going to pull up in a limousine one day and and take me to New York. And I was just going to, you know, <laughs> live with him. And mm-hmm. just, I mean, just the fantasies that kids have, you know. James and his mother went to the adoption agency to get his non-identifying information. He learned a little bit about what his biological parents looked like and that he had an older biological brother on his mother's side of the family. That effort wasn't really a search, just an information-gathering mission. He kept that information close by for years. At 35 years old, in 2004, James initiated a search with a San Diego-based search angel named Judy, who runs an online adoption registry called findmyfamily.org. She used James's birthday and the hospital he was born in to narrow their search down to under 10 possible names for his birth mother. But the internet wasn't the robust search resource that it is today, so the search for James's birth mother stalled. Finally, in 2017, James's wife, Marcelle, took the information online and just dug in. Like a detective, she put together the ages, relationship, and details on the California Birth Index to locate the one person with the last name of one of the women in the search group who was born in the same year as his birth mother, based on the non-identifying information. At that point, she was able to go on the internet and find her. And she's like, okay, this is your mom. <laughs> you know? Wow. <laughs> and, what was that like for you? Like, like, were you with her during the search? Or how did that? How did she tell yeah, you the news? Yeah, I was with her, but I wasn't as invested because, I don't know, I just didn't want to get my hopes up. You know, I, I just, I had already kind of put this in the impossible box. And right. um, my, my only prayer was that I might um get a picture one day of somebody I, I was related to that was like kind of what i was asking god for at that point i just want to see a picture i never thought we'd actually find the people and i mean that's a needle in the haystack and and you know that stuff doesn't happen for me you know <laughs> so, right right why would you hold so hope for she, this, something like this yeah yeah i didn't want to get my yeah so when she found her i was like eh, okay well maybe you know i just didn't want to get my hopes up Shortly thereafter, Marshall found James's birth father online too, but they didn't want to stalk these people, so they turned back to Judy to get advice as to what to do next, based on her experience in reunion. Judy offered to reach out as a genealogist with the introductory information that she had found someone that was related to his birth mother. The innocuous message she left didn't really hit home with his birth mother when she first received it. When she got the message from Judy, she thought it sounded interesting, but not so pressing that she wanted to circle back immediately. Now, meanwhile, we're sitting on pins and needles, right? I mean, we're like, every day is, you know, like, okay, is this going to be the day? 
James and Marshall were getting antsy and were about to simply reach out to the woman themselves. Judy asked if she could have one more crack at it, presenting a more succinct and direct message, making it clearer that the person she was working with was someone who was looking for their biological family, and he really thought they might be related. And that's when my mom says that, you know, the light just went on. She's like, oh my God, you know, she had that moment of clarity and it was just, she just, you know, it was a miracle for her too, you know, and she's just like, oh, I know what this is, you know, and there was no denying. She didn't, it was very fortunate. It went very well. You know, I know these things can go different ways, but it went, I, I couldn't have asked for a better outcome. Judy brokered the introductions, providing each the other's phone numbers. James finally got the chance to call his birth mother. We just had a great conversation. My mom was really cool. She's a very nice, sweet lady. And she just said she thought about me every day. It was the hardest decision she ever made. There's a whole backstory. I mean, the backstory is, is really very interesting and, and cool. You know, the first call was just, like, wow, you know, how are you? <laughs> like, what do yeah. you really say? You know, it was just kind of like, wow, okay, you're my mom, you know, and yeah. it's like, wow, son, I just, you know, I thought about you every day. You know, it was, it was just kind of a sweet conversation. James admitted that he thought he knew his birth father's name, and without even saying it, his birth mother confirmed the man's identity, Robert. She even used his nickname. Before that conversation, Marshall had found James's birth father's obituary and seen a picture of his tombstone at a Quantico, Virginia cemetery with that nickname on it. The night she found his birth mother's name, she was up all night as one clue led to another. She found pictures of the man and James's half-brother, and their resemblance was undeniable. While James was initiating contact with his birth mother, Marshall was also reaching out to his brother. She found out where he was employed through his Facebook page and called him at work where she was unexpectedly forwarded to his voicemail. Marcel nearly hung up because she hadn't rehearsed what she was going to say and the whole thing was just crazy. But she left a message. 45 minutes later, James's brother called Marcel back. She said a quick prayer before she answered the phone, then shared the story of her husband recently finding his birth mother. Here's Marcel. And I said, the thing is, I said, um, I believe his dad is your father. And he was completely silent. He was not saying, you know, I was waiting for him to cuss me out. He wasn't saying anything very, uh, just, he was very friendly, just listening. He asked a few questions and he said, well, I don't think this could be true because my dad was married and, um, and, you know, he just kind of went into some detail why it, it wasn't possible that it could be his dad. And mm -hmm. then he said, um, well, what's your your husband's name? And um, I, I gave it to him. And he looked him up on Facebook while we we're speaking. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he knew because they look exactly alike. Wow. <laughs> and he just was like, oh, he said it. He's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and the conversation just shifted. Suddenly, James's brother wanted to know more about him. He wanted to hear about his upbringing and just more about James. James's brother decided he wanted to talk to their uncle, James's father's brother. It was likely that he had historical knowledge from decades ago. He called back to say the uncle remembered the relationship with James's biological mother and he recalled hearing about the pregnancy situation. 
all of this was happening so fast, I had to wonder how James was feeling as it all unfolded. What are you thinking, given that you had basically given up on all of this? Right. So I had to go through layers of kind of go through layers of disbelief and and accept that this was actually happening. Um, so the initial feeling, of course, is joy and relief and all that. But it, it's also it's kind of tempered by years and years and years of of not wanting to, you know, have hope. And you know what I mean? So it's like all that stuff has to kind of break through the um the layers of protection i put on around this if you know what i mean so it was all very surreal but i will say i will say that almost immediately i felt like a hole being filled you know what i mean like spiritually and emotionally i felt a is a, a filling that's all i can that's the only way i can really describe it being filled that's you amazing. know where there's always been a hole and it was, that that was immediate. That was immediate. And then, and then the joy and the acceptance kind of had to work its way through. You know that that kind of wall of protection I've I put around, hoping that this would ever happen. And so I'm still processing this. You know, it's, it's been a year and a half, and I'm still processing. My mom says the same thing. Like we're still processing. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but I've just been very fortunate with this outcome and how everybody's responded. The first biological family member James met was his paternal brother. He and his family were traveling to Washington, D.C., so they met up. A big group of them had brunch, and they went to the National African American Museum of History and Culture. And we took a picture. It's funny. We we kind of have the same sort of pose, and it's not planned. It's just, you know, those kind of those those can't help it type things that I guess kind of genetically kind of happened. It's funny. Yeah, it's we, were, just we were walking and my oh. wife and his wife said, what? they're watching us walk. And they're like, you guys are walking in lockstep. You know? <laughs> like, so cool. I, I, man, now I love stuff like that. You know, it, it just gives me a sense of belonging and, and connection that I've never had. And may I ask your brother's black? Yeah. How was it to then be, amongst black people that you look like having not been around a family that you looked like before man you nailed it i mean that that was awesome <laughs> that was awesome to be around black folks that i'm actually related to that i actually look like that man i mean that just a sense of completion a sense of coming home a sense of identity that i've never had it was just awesome. It was fantastic. It was just, you know, it's just, I just thank God every day for that. It was, it was amazing. That's really, really interesting. Amazing. Yeah. I'll bet that did feel you like know? a coming home. During that same visit, James met his paternal sister, more than 10 years older than himself. They had lunch and talked, but their connection has been limited to that. In January of 2018, James's mother flew from Boise, Idaho to BWI in Baltimore. So I met her, I hugged her for the first time. I was 48 years old and I hugged my mom for the first time in, in BWI airport <laughs> and my wife videotaped it too. <laughs> Is that right? That's incredible. Yeah. What was that like to yep. meet her for the first time? It was, you know, I was, I was expecting sort of this avalanche of emotions and it, I didn't have that. I had a, it was almost like a relief. You know what I mean? It was like, okay, you know, that 
this is my mom. You know, it was, I was, I was just extremely happy and grateful to, to finally meet her. And, but I, I didn't have this sort of overwhelming, like I didn't collapse or, you know what I mean? Like there wasn't anything like that, but it was, it was just a really sweet sort of um, relief to finally connect with my mother, you know, and we've actually, it's taken, she just came and visited on mother's day. So it was, I think it was our third time. Cause I've been out to Idaho since then as well. And, um, I think this time was the most I've felt actually connected to her, you know? So it, it's had to grow. It's had to, it's been a process and mm-hmm. I wanted it. I don't want to feel any fake emotion. I don't want to fake anything. You know what I mean? I don't want to like pretend that there was something that wasn't, there. I wanted to really genuinely feel everything. And, um, and it's been a process, you know, yeah. but one thing I've, one thing that I, um, that I told her the first time we met, I told her it was important for me. And I, I told her, I don't even know if this is important to you, but I just want to tell you that I love you and I forgive you, you know? And, um, I, I needed to tell her that out loud, maybe just for me. I don't know, but I needed to, cause I definitely had a resentment for a long time. So I needed to, to let her off the hook, so to speak. So you, that was, you needed it. That, it was, that was awesome. It does sound like you needed it for, for both of you, for her and for yourself. Yeah, because if yeah, if you had all those layers built up over time, I'm sure one of them mm-hmm. was directly related to her and you specifically. And it sounds right. like you needed to sort of just break that wall right down so that you guys could yeah, go forward. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. How did she receive your words? She cried a little bit, you know, just out of I don't know, just out of love, you know, and and um, I don't think that she suffers from a whole lot of of guilt or anything she didn't she, she and, and that's good you know i don't want her to I, I never wanted her to but um she she just kind of teared up a little and and we hugged and she thanked me you know and um so it was well received james's birth mother told him the story of meeting his biological father in the dc area that was a bit of a surprise to him because he had it in his mind he was conceived where he grew up in the san francisco bay area she fell in love with a guy who had money and enjoyed the nightlife. But the whole time, James's dad was a bit of a gangster and a hustler, but she didn't know it. When she got pregnant, she had to go down to Lorton, Virginia, where he was in jail, to deliver the news. When she went to go tell him that she was pregnant, she noticed another name on the visitor's log, <laughs> you know. Uh, and uh, so she asked, hey, who is this? You know, and... and uh, so that's when he told her that he was actually married the whole time. And, um, you know, like, like my wife told you, my brother, my brother, my sister, I have another brother, um, as well from that marriage. Um, so the, the whole time he had been married and, um, that, that really devastated her, broke her heart. So she fled her words. She fled to D- to San Francisco. And this is obviously summer of 68. Um, cause I was born February 69 and, um, she went to San Francisco and, and had me and, and she decided that, um, that it was going to be very difficult for a lot of reasons. Um, one of them is that my grandfather, she's from California, so it's, it was easy for her to, to go back to, to California. Um, she went back to San Francisco, but my grandfather, he was, a a JAG, he was a judge advocate general in the Marines. And, um, Unfortunately, though, he was from deep South Texas somewhere, and he was a racist. You know, there's no real other way to 
to put it. I, I, from all accounts, he was pretty nice guy. He, you know, he was all right guy <laughs> in all other aspects, but he he was not. Um, he was racist, and it's kind of everybody. That's kind of how they were from deep South Texas from his generation. <laughs> it's just culturally that's that's who he was, right. and um, so she felt that bringing in this brown baby into the equation, into the family was not going to, there wasn't going to be any support. It was going to be very difficult. James's birth mother went on to say that she was already struggling with his older brother as a single mother at the time. So her hope was to give James a better opportunity in life with a different family. James said his grandfather had taken in his maternal brother while his birth mother was pregnant with him. So his grandfather knew that his daughter had a son, but James thinks it's unlikely he knew about his mixed race. She was the hardest decision she ever made. She, you know, when she handed me over, she was crying. I mean, it was it wasn't she didn't make the decision lightly, you know, and um, but she thought it was going to be best all the way around to give me a shot, you know, at a, at a better a better beginning. Unbelievable. Yeah. How was it for you to hear? This story about how you came to be, that your father was married, a bit of a gangster, yeah. you know, infidelity, uh, but it sounds like they liked each <laughs> other. I mean, there's a lot there. It, sounds, it doesn't sound like you were, conce you were conceived out of some love, you know, because it sounds like they hung out and had fun. How, yeah. did you, how did you receive this whole story? I mean, I think I received it somewhat objectively, you know, I mean, I, I just really wanted to know the backstory and it, and, and it, and it also just gave me another sense of completion. Like I, now I know the story, you know what, I, know what I mean? Like, I think it was good that I came to know this sort of at this age and where I am in my process that I'm able to kind of just receive the information and, you know, kind of objectively. And, and I, I just, I don't know. I just felt like, Okay, now I finally know, you know, and it was good to know that they they were in love. I mean, that that was very clear, you know. They they were. This wasn't a one night stand. This wasn't, you know, it, it was what it was. I mean, unfortunately, it was a result of infidelity, and you know, there's some some things that obviously aren't the greatest of situations, but um, but you know, it all kind of made sense. You know, it all kind of. Every all the blocks kind of fell into place like, OK, well, that makes sense. James told me that forgiveness has been something he's had to work up to, acknowledging all that has transpired to bring him to this point. I've had to do a lot of the work, you know, around forgiveness and around forgiving her. You know, I have a, a mentor who's who's worked with me around that stuff because I thought I dealt with it, but I, I, I really hadn't, you know, you know, how we deal with stuff, our stuff happens, you know, I just need to get over it. You know, that's not really dealing with it. Right, <laughs> so right. I had to kind of dig deep and, and do a whole exercise around forgiving, forgiving her, letting her off the hook and realizing that people do the best they can. And, um, you know, it's important to let people off the hook and, and not to hold on to grudges because that, that closes you down. And now, you know, even in, I go around and I, I do some ministry and, and some other things. And, and my message is always forgiveness. It's always, you got to forgive. You got to forgive. And, um, and so it was important for me to let her know that, that 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 wasn't something that I was holding on to. I wasn't holding on to any grudges. And that I knew she did what she did. She did out of love and out of hoping to give me a better chance. So it was important. But my dad, it's funny. they um. She tells me that he wanted to, her to keep me and, and to 
figure it out, you know, and to, and to stay and to have me and, and let him be my dad and not, not leave and just kind of, you know, I guess he would have had to come clean with his wife or just whatever. I mean, I don't know how that was going to work, but he was very adamant, you know, about, no, let's, let's, let's do this. James speaks with some pride for his birth father, a man he never met, but someone that the family and community seemed to hold in high regard as a caring, patriarchal figure and a funny and loving guy. He admitted that hearing his father's desire to try to keep him in the family and work things out was validating. You know, so he was, he was, he wanted to, he wanted to give it a try and figure it out, you know, and I think that's, I'm kind of, in a weird way, I'm kind of proud of that. Yeah, you know, sure. Maybe yeah. it sounds weird, but. No, no, no. It, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, for a person who's adopted, you sometimes have that question of why wasn't I, you know, kept and retained in my biological family? And to know that someone, mm-hmm. both people actually have said, you know, this was the hardest decision I've I've ever made. Um, and right. you know, your father wanted to keep you. He wanted to work it out, et cetera, et cetera. Like those are validating things that make it easier right. to swallow what transpired afterward. Um, versus right. just like being tossed aside, as it were. You know, I didn't want right. you. I wasn't interested. You know, that right. would have been that would have been a different set of feelings. So I can totally understand how you feel validated by and a sense of pride by that. That's really cool. Yeah, that's a that's a great, great word for it. Validation. Yeah, that's exactly that crystallizes it. Yeah. Awesome, James. This has been really cool, man. I appreciate you taking time to share your story. I, I liked hearing about your recovery as an adult to a place where you found mm-hmm. your voice and that you found you found a place that you can also forgive your parents for all that has happened so that you can move forward at least with your biological mother together that's really cool man congrats absolutely all right i appreciate you taking the time to um to talk you know it's it's always good to to express this stuff so thanks for being (laughs) for being there yeah man thanks (laughs) for your openness take care james all the best great meeting you all right okay all right bye bye Hey, it's me. James got the details and closure he needed to fill the holes in his life story. In his reunion with his biological mother, he was able to tell her face to face, right from the start, that he forgave her and he had love for her. He further admitted something that I think a lot of adoptees feel about biological parents they don't actually get to meet. A sense of pride for how Robert treated his family, as told by the stories of others. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in James's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? You can find the show online at whoamireallypodcast.com, where you can sign up for emails to learn more about some of the things I'm brainstorming. I'd really appreciate your support for the show with contributions at patreon.com slash really paypal.me slash Damon Davis or or Venmo at Damon L. Davis. I hope you'll leave a rating for Who Am I Really wherever you get your podcasts so that others can find the podcast too.